Episode 17, Trouble Down Under, Part 2. Welcome back to the second of two episodes, all about Australian mysteries. In the last episode, we discussed the Trump family and their bizarre, unexplained attempt to get off the grid. Then we took a look at German explorer Ludwig Leichhardt and his last expedition. Our final story, From the Great Southern Land, took place in 1948 and might be the most mysterious of them all. On December 1st, 1948, at 6.30 a.m., someone contacted the police after discovering the body of a man at Somerton Park Beach. The beach, which is located in southern Australia, is just over 450 miles northwest of Melbourne. The man was lying on his back in the sand, head resting against the seawall. His legs were in a relaxed position with his feet crossed. It looked originally like he had died in his sleep. While that could be true, it's probably not. Detectives found an unlit cigarette on his right coat collar, and a search through his pockets revealed an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city that may not have been used, a comb manufactured in the United States, half a pack of Juicy Fruit, more Scottish brand cigarettes, and a partially full box of matches. Numerous witnesses who had seen the body the night before spoke to the police. One claimed to have seen him raise his right arm at some point, while a couple who watched him for nearly a half hour never saw the man move a muscle. They found this especially bizarre because there were mosquitoes out everywhere. Assuming him to be drunk or just asleep, they didn't get close enough to find out. Another person claims to have watched a man standing just above the body on the steps that run down to the beach. To the pathologist, John Burton Cleland, the man appeared to be of British descent and between 40 and 45 years old. He was 5 foot 11 inches tall, had gray eyes, fair hair, with broad shoulders and a narrow waist. Cleland was quoted as saying that he'd been in top physical condition. His hands and nails showed no signs of defensive wounds or manual labor. Because of the way his toes were pointed, combined with his high calf muscles, it was assumed he either wore boots, heels, or possibly performed ballet. The unknown man was dressed in a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie, brown slacks, socks, and shoes, brown pullover, and a gray and brown double-breasted jacket that was reportedly of American make. Interestingly enough, all the labels on his clothes had been removed, and he had no wallet. It was starting to look like a possible suicide to the officers. Police checked his dental records, but they couldn't be matched to anyone. An autopsy was conducted, and the pathologist estimated the time of death at around 2 a.m. on December 1st. The autopsy revealed congestion of various vessels around the brain. His liver was congested, as were the spleen, pharynx, and stomach. The spleen was also noticeably larger than it should have been. The man doing the autopsy finished by saying, I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural. He believed that the poison was either a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. Over a month later, on January 14th of 1949, staff members at the railway station in Adelaide discovered a brown suitcase with its label removed. The suitcase had been checked into the cloakroom on the afternoon of November 30th, the day before his body was found. It was believed that the suitcase belonged to the man 
found on the beach. Inside was a red checkered dressing gown, red felt pair of slippers, four changes of underwear, pajamas, shaving kit, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, electrician screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a short, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, and a stenciling brush like the ones used on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. The search of the suitcase also revealed a thread card of Barber brand orange waxed thread, not available in Australia. It so happens that the same thread was used to repair the lining in a pocket of the pants that they found the body in, just like the clothes on his body. Any identifying marks on the clothes had been removed. Police did, however, find the name T. Keen on a tie, the word Keen on a laundry bag, and Keen without the last E on a singlet. Could that have been the man's name? Or was a murderer trying to put police on the wrong track? A search concluded that no one with the name T. Keen was missing in any English-speaking country. After an inquest on January 17th, a second pathologist suggested that the cause of death could have been one of two drugs, both of which were nearly untraceable in small doses. He also added that the man's shoes were polished and remarkably clean for having walked on a beach. Both of his findings suggested that the man was murdered and then carried to his final resting place. Four months after the body was found, another look through the man's possessions revealed something strange. Sewn inside the man's pants pocket was a tiny piece of rolled-up paper. Printed on the paper were the words, Tamam Shud. Officials were brought in to translate the text and found it to mean, It is finished, in Persian. Furthermore, they were able to match the font and verbiage to the last page of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Omar Khayyam was a Persian mathematician, astronomer, and poet born in the year 1048. The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam is the title that poet Edward Fitzgerald gave to his 1859 translations of Khayyam's work from Persian to English. Fitzgerald dubbed Khayyam the astronomer poet of Persia. The work has seen tons of editions and has been translated in numerous languages. There have been many arguments against the liberties Fitzgerald may have taken when translating Khayyam's original poems. Nonetheless, the later editions found moderate success in English-speaking parts of the world, so much so that Omar Khayyam clubs were formed, and there was even a cult built around his words, or more so Fitzgerald's interpretation of his words. We'll discuss the cult in a bit. Police released a photograph of the scrap of paper to the press as part of a countrywide public appeal for the copy of the Rubaiyat that the piece was torn from. Shortly after the police asked the public for help, a businessman named John Freeman, who lived not far from where the body was found, showed up to the police station with a copy of the book. The man's brother-in-law apparently found the book on the floor of Freeman's back seat and was reading it while out for a drive. Thinking it belonged to Freeman, he placed it in the glove box when they arrived at their destination. When Freeman heard the police request, he remembered his brother-in-law reading it, thinking it was his, and went to the car and retrieved it. Sure enough, Freeman said, on the last page, down at the bottom, where the Tamam Shud would have been, it was missing. With each brother-in-law thinking it belonged to the other, a new mystery formed as to how it got into the car in the first place. Once the book was in police custody, a quick flip through the pages revealed two new clues. On the very back page of the book, they were able to make out faint indentations of a sequence of letters, believed to be a code, 
along with a couple of telephone numbers. It was as if someone had written with some force on another piece of paper using the book to write upon. I'll post a photo of the code on Curator135.com, but here it is for you. Line 1. W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D Line 2. M-L-I-A-O-I But line 2 is crossed out. Line number 3. W-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P Line 4 has nothing but a lowercase x. Line 5. M-L-I-A-B-O-A-I-A-Q-C Line 5 appears to be what the person meant to write in line 2 before crossing it out. And finally, in line 6, it reads I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B. Only one of the phone numbers revealed any leads. The number belonged to a woman named Jessica Ellen Joe Thompson. Joe was a nurse who lived less than a mile away from where the body was found. Obviously, Miss Thompson was called into the police station. Although she claimed not to know the man featured in the photos, or why he'd have her number, things got a little strange when they brought out the plaster cast they'd made of the man's upper torso and head. The lead detective described her reaction upon seeing the cast by saying, She was completely taken aback, to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. The technician, who made the cast and was present when she viewed it, added that, After looking at the bust, she immediately looked away and would not look at it again. Also interesting is that when she spoke to police, she admitted to once owning a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. However, she claimed to have given her copy to an Australian army lieutenant named Alf Boxall while serving as a nurse during World War II. For a while, police thought Boxall could be their John Doe, but he was later found very much alive and his copy of the book was fully intact. Later on in 1949, Thompson made a plea to the police department that they not keep her name and details in police reports as it would be embarrassing and harmful to her reputation to be linked to such a case. The police agreed to it, which would make later investigations much more difficult. Finally, in late 1949, the body of the man who'd come to be known as the Somerton Man was buried in Adelaide's West Terrace Cemetery with a service conducted by the Salvation Army. As the years passed by, little things would happen that would bring the investigation to the forefront again. At one point, flowers began appearing on the Somerton man's grave. Police questioned a woman seen leaving the cemetery, but she claimed she knew nothing of the man. Around the same time, the receptionist from the hotel, across the street from the railway station where the suitcase was found, reported that a strange man had stayed in one of their rooms for a few days around the time of the body being discovered. The man was reportedly English-speaking and only carrying a small black case like a medical bag. When an employee looked inside the case, he described seeing something that looked like a needle. Whoever the man was checked out of the hotel the night before the body was found. In 1959, a witness came forward and reported to the police that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Park Beach the night before the body was found. A police report was made, but nothing came of it. It would certainly explain why his shoes were clean. Later that year, in November, it was reported that an inmate at a New Zealand prison claimed to know the identity of the dead man. Yet again, nothing came of it.
Military and naval intelligence, code crackers, mathematicians, and people all around the world have attempted to crack the code. I happen to fall in line with the beliefs of retired detective Jerry Feltis, who seems to think that each letter stands for the beginning of a word. He suggested in a Sunday Mail article that the final line, I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B, could stand for the initials of It's Time to Move to South Australia, Mosley Street. Mosley Street being where Jessica Joe Thompson lived. An analysis done in 2014 suggests the same thing, but after a large survey of literature, there were no matches found. A more widely believed theory is that the Somerton man was a spy, in part because of the way he died, but also due to the things that were going on around that time. World War II was still fresh on everyone's minds, and the Cold War was in its infancy. There were two sites close to where the body was found that were of interest to spies the Radium Hill Uranium Mine, and the Woomera Test Range and Military Research Facility. There were also some shakeups happening within various Australian security agencies that would lead to the creation of the ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. What followed was a crackdown on Soviet espionage in Australia. One of the lead detectives on the Somerton Man case was former South Australian Chief Superintendent Len Brown. He stated that he believed that the man was from a country in the Warsaw Pact, which was why they had zero luck in later investigations when it came to identifying the man. The Warsaw Pact was a defense treaty started around 1955 by the Soviet Union. It included Albania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Poland, and Romania. Len Brown was almost positive that the Somerton man had come from a country within the communist Eastern Bloc. At the time, the Western and Eastern blocs did not communicate, which again made identifying the man even more difficult. Another reason why the spy theory has stuck around has to do with a gentleman who I mentioned a few minutes ago. If you'll remember, Joe Thompson, whose number was found in the back of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, admitted she had owned a copy at one time, giving it to a man she met during World War II, Alf Boxall. Well, it turns out that Boxall was working within an intelligence agency at the time he'd received the book from Thompson. Boxall climbed the military ladder at an impressive rate, working with a special ops unit called NAOU, the North Australia Observer Unit. He was promoted from Lance Corporal to Lieutenant within three months. So, we have a man with no identity, possible murder, espionage, and, as I mentioned earlier, a potential for cult ties. As the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam garnered more interest, clubs centered around the astronomer-poet of Persia began to form. One was even considered a cult. The French term, fin du siècle, refers to the end of an era, or turn of the century. The term was widely used in Europe as the clock ticked down towards 1900. The political theme at the time seemed to include a revolt against materialism, rationalism, and democracy. Those in the fondue siècle generation supported emotionalism, irrationalism, subjectivism, and vitalism. Believers saw civilization as being in a crisis that required a massive and total solution. Followers of Omar Khayyam thought of his works as very early examples of fondue siècle, and eventually the fondue siècle cult of the Rubaiyat was formed. At one point, the cult contained 59 members. 
The group was made up of some of the top names in the literary and fine arts world at the time, William Morris, George Meredith, and John Ruskin. Now, I realize that this wasn't the sacrificing, robe-wearing, murderous type of cult, so maybe there is no real connection between the Rubaiyat and the Somerton Man, but you never know what these creative and influential and powerful minds may have started. There have been other cases where the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam somehow showed up. In 1945, three years before the Somerton Man was found on the beach, a 34-year-old Singaporean named George Marshall was found dead with an open copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam on his chest. Marshall's death was also thought to be a suicide by poisoning. An inquest was a month later, and a woman named Gwyneth Dorothy Graham testified. She was found dead 13 days later, face down in a bathtub. In June of 1949, a father and son went missing. A man named Neil McRae of Largs Bay, which is about 30 minutes north of Somerton Park, reportedly had a dream. In the dream, he saw their location. Police later went to that exact location and found the body of two-year-old Clive Magnuson in a sack. Lying next to him was his unconscious father, Keith Magnuson. The father was taken to a hospital in very weak condition, suffering from exposure, and following a medical examination, was transferred to a mental hospital. The Magnusons had been missing for four days. The mother-slash-wife, Roma Magnuson, reported being threatened by a masked man who tried to run her over with his car. The man warned her to keep away from the police, or else the same man had been seen lurking around the house days before. Mrs. Magnuson believed that she was being harassed and that her son had been killed all because her husband attempted to identify the Somerton man. After being interviewed by the police, she collapsed and required medical treatment. Various local politicians received anonymous threats instructing them to keep their noses out of the Magnuson situation. So what does any of this stuff have to do with the unknown man found dead on a beach in 1948? Heck if I know. The theme of the Rubaiyat is that one should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it ends. It certainly seems, however, that it's tied into a great deal of death and mystery. Omar Khayyam would stay influential well into the 20th century. Famed poet Ezra Pound named his son Omar in his honor. It's rumored that there are still clubs dedicated to Khayyam even now. You'll understand, after listening to all the facts and mysteries surrounding the Somerton Man, why I made this a two-part episode. We talked about the Trump family and Ludwig Leichhardt in part one, but the Somerton Man clearly needed his own episode. There are more twists and turns to this story than a Sunday walkabout. It's interesting to note that the Somerton Man, as of this week, is back in the news. After 70-plus years, they've finally come up with enough money and support to have the body exhumed. How about one more twist to the story? A professor at Adelaide University named Derek Abbott has dedicated at least two decades to trying to solve the case. He became so entangled in the mystery that he possibly married himself into the Somerton man's family. It seems that Joe Thompson had a one-and-a-half-year-old son at the time of the original investigation. Professor Abbott looked into her son named Robin Thompson, and found that he shared some very unique facial features with the Somerton Man. Robin had made quite a career for himself as a ballet dancer, something detectives thought the Somerton Man may have participated in, considering his toned leg muscles. 
Robin Thompson had died in 2009, but Abbott was able to locate the man's daughter, Rachel Egan. She was nearby, living in Queensland. He contacted her, wooed her by extracting her DNA, and they eventually married. Together, the couple have led the charge to have the Somerton man's body exhumed in hopes of extracting some DNA. The only problem? No state government has agreed to the exhumation. Until now. On Tuesday, or maybe Wednesday, possibly Thursday, I'm never sure how time zones work, I just know that Australia is always in the future when compared to Michigan, they were able to safely remove the entirety of the Somerton man's skeleton. It was a slow, painstaking 12 hours, but they were able to get all of the remains into a new casket and send him on his way for DNA analysis at the Forensic Science Center. It's exciting news, but interested parties like Professor Abbott, his wife, the Attorney General, police, and curious onlookers like myself may have to wait a few months before they know anything. The last two stanzas in the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam say, But see, the rising moon of heaven again Looks for us, sweetheart, through the quivering plain How oft, hereafter rising, will she look Among those leaves, for one of us in vain And when yourself with silver foot shall pass Among the guests, star scattered on the grass And in your joyous errand reach the spot where I made one. Turn down an empty glass. Now, I obviously don't know what any of that means, but it sounds as prophetic and deep as anything I've ever read while using that voice, which means it has to be important. So thank you, Australia. It has been a pleasure learning about your majesty and mystery these last few weeks. One day, I hope to visit, maybe once I become rich and famous, or... Perhaps if I ever need to flee the country, which is more likely. To my lovely cousin Kelly and her husband Chris, who I'd like to get to know better, keep an eye on things over there. Keep me posted on any updates or new crazy stories, and please be careful. Don't go into the center of your country if you don't have to. With these new developments, the Summerton Man case promises to stay top of mind. I'll circle back to the story if anything new pops up. I'll also be posting some photos from all three of these stories on my website, curator135.com. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out the Curator Number 135 merch shop on Amazon. And please, if you enjoy the podcast, give it a five-star rating on whichever podcast streaming service you use. It really helps. Until next time, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. <laughs>